0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God. And just by a show of hands, all right, um, how many of you, can proudly just you know if I if I ask, if I ask you this question, you're able to raise your hand. Deep within your soul, in your heart, you believe that God is sovereign. Can I just see show of hands? Okay, you can put your hands down. Um, the reason why I wanted to ask is I think that this is this is definitely a difficult topic, but yet this is a characteristic of God that is clearly revealed all throughout the Bible. That simply that God is king, and this king is in control of everything. That there is not like a microsecond that goes by in which God is surprised by anything. Or that he's not in control of anything. And um, I think it's definitely, um, I'm so thankful, because like as we've been going through Romans, Brad has been preaching, really, the sovereignty of God because it's so central to the book of Romans. And I think sometimes like, we, we feel like maybe, maybe the New, New Testament is disconnected from the Old Testament. You know how sometimes uh, when I talk to a lot of non-believers, they're like, Chris, God seems like an angry God in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he's like this loving and gracious God. What's up with that? And I'm like, no, no, no." you see, you don't understand. When you read the whole council of Scripture, right, you read the stories of Adam and Eve. You read the story of Cain and Abel and the Israelites. The only thing that I see is this sovereign, perfect God relentlessly pursuing his people, even after they continually rebel against him. And the full, like, revealing of that comes in Jesus Christ because he's God in the flesh. And I think sometimes, I, I tell you that because sometimes we have a disconnect, And I think sometimes we're like, okay, is God sovereign in the New Testament? He's not in the old. I'm not saying that any of you have that understanding, but I think sometimes there are some gaps. And the heart behind this message is this, is as we've been talking about some deep truths, I know that for some of you there may be some tension. I know that for some of you there may be like, oh, I believe that's that's what I've been taught my whole life. For some of you, no, I reject it. That's completely wrong. All right? And for others, you're like, I I know the word is saying this, but I kind of believe this, and like, what am I to believe? All right? And I'm praying that we, can, um, that we can be okay there, all right? That, you know, through this message, that something that will be revealed clear to you is God's sovereignty. Because I know that's so central to our lives. Because a lot of you, including me, raised our hand when, uh, when we said, you know, do you, do you deep within your heart believe that God is sovereign? But what God has been speaking to me recently is like, there are some gaps be- in my life. Because at the head level, I believe he's sovereign. But really at the heart, and by the way I live my life, I contradict that belief. For example, how many of you can honestly say that right now it's just been a season of busyness and you're a little overwhelmed? I, I can. I'll be right there. And I'm not saying that busyness is necessarily this wicked thing, but I was listening to a sermon this week by Paul David Tripp and they just asked, it was like a two-minute message and they were asking him, what are one of the biggest... Challenges facing the church. And he just said. It's busyness. We fill our lives with so many insignificant things. And the busyness is what prevents us from. From. From enjoying God simply. Or from even being on mission for God. That we. We're we're so busy. And. I know that there's lots of different reasons for our business, but what God has personally been convicting me is a lot of my busyness is grounded in the fact that I want to be in control of a situation or the fact that I need to do something. And in reality, what my actions are really showing is I'm not really believing God is, in sov- God is sovereign when I feel like I have to be in control of things. And all throughout the scriptures, we see that God has made it clear that he is sovereign And we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 3 in the Old Testament, right? And this is one of those, like, you know, like haymakers that I personally feel are like the clearest case of God's sovereignty and what we're to do in light of that. Amen? So before we get into Ecclesiastes 3, just wanted to read to you a quote from a pastor by the name of A.W. Pink. Some of it's in Old English, so just bear with me, okay? But uh, he's quote, he quotes a, a verse from 1 Chronicles twenty nine eleven that reads, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is a kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. And in response to this verse, this is what A.W. Pink writes. The sovereignty of God is an expression that once was generally understood. It was a phrase commonly used in religious literature. It was a theme frequently expounded in the pulpit. It was a truth which brought comfort to many hearts and gave virility and stability to Christian character. But today, to make mention of God's sovereignty is in many quarters to speak in an unknown tongue. Were we to announce from the average pulpit that the subject of our discourse would be the sovereignty of God, it would sound very much as though we had borrowed a phrase from one of the dead languages. Alas, that it should be so, alas, that the doctrine which is the key to history the interpreter of providence, the warp and woof of Scripture, and the foundation of Christian theology should be so sadly neglected and so little understood. So now he's going to say, this is the sovereignty of God. He goes on, the sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What thouest thou? Daniel 4.35. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, Or resist his will. Psalm 115.3 To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations. Psalm 22.28 Setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 This is the concluding sentence. Such is the God of the Bible. Amen. Amen. All that to say, God is pretty darn awesome. He's in control of everything. There's not, I mean, can you think about, there's not like, there's not a micro inch of the entire universe in which God does not have authority. And scriptures is so clear about that that he's in control and that he owns all things and that, that he has perfect control over all things. And it's his. It's all his. It belongs to him. And that's, that's huge implications for our life. Because if there's not a micro-inch in which God's sovereignty doesn't cover, that means he covers my whole entire life. And that's, that's pretty serious news, right? So with that, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <clears throat> and it's... it's um, 15 verses we're going to read, a little long, but uh, I'm sure many of you have read this before. I'm sure many of you have heard this read at a funeral before, um, and uh, we're just going to break this down. Verses, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a what? Season. And a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. Amen, right? I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) So right off the bat, we see uh, here in verse 1 that everything, there is a season, and there's a time for every matter under heaven. In other words, for everything, there's an appropriate time. Human life is not haphazard. There's a proper time for every matter under heaven. In other words, uh, you know how some Christians tell you, hey, there's a reason for everything? This is kind of where they get it, you know, because this is the clear biblical verse that says, hey, there's a reason for everything. Everything happens for a reason. needs to be qualified, but just so you know, biblical grounding there, okay? Um, the teacher goes on by giving us this poem on, on what do you think would be the theme? If you were to say one word, what would be the theme of this poem? Do you guys, any, anyone like poetry? I hated poetry until I started reading the Bible, and then it, the, the Bible's full of poetry. But what would you say is like one word theme for the Bible? Yes, times, okay. And how do we know that? 14 lines of poetry, and within these verses, the word time is used 28 times. So whenever you see repetition there, it's like, okay, there's some, there's some, there's some, some good, good, good themes there. And the author is using repetition for a purpose. And you notice, look at the structure of the poem. What does it begin with? Birth and death. And then it ends with war and peace. And one theologian comments, it's like a, like a ticking talk, right? It's like a clock that ticks and talks. sorry. And, and all you hear is this, that tick tock, that annoying tick tock, tick tock. And it won't stop. Verse 2, time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So some simple observations, right? So we know that the poem starts with the beginning of the human life. You and I didn't decide the time that we're going to be born. Did anybody decide when they were going to be born? No. No, are you going to be able to decide when you die? These are out of our control. So we see that this first pair here is matched up with the second pair. What's the second pair? Plant and to be plucked up. We don't control the time to plant, nor do we control the time to pluck up. These are, they're appointed times for these. We can, uh, you know, what you and I really do is we plant our trees at the appropriate time. And we also remove them at the appropriate time. And this is the same in our planting as well. People plant their annual flowers during springtime. And in the fall, they're plucked up. You're free to plant whenever you want, but you're not free to control the appointed times. I mean, you can plant in the middle of winter, but doing so could be a big mistake, right? Might be really hard to get even in the ground, right? Um, In other words, the writer's telling us, you and I can't control the appropriate time. Then he goes on to say, verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. We can't control the appropriate times to kill and heal for example, there, are, there will be a time when a soldier, out of self-defense, will have to kill. There may be a time in your life when some intruder comes into your house and your family is threatened. You may have to. There are times to heal after times of war and strife. There should be times of healing. There's also a time to break down and a time to build up. We... We can think of this in a couple ways, as when an army during war tears down the enemy's buildings and afterwards rebuilds them. One theologian comments this. He says, In ancient Palestine, construction often required dismantling of existing stone structures. And we understand this in modern society, right? There are times that you just got to tear down the old so that you have room for the new, right? Verse 4, Time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's times in life for that, isn't there? And we all know this. There's times to weep and times to laugh. And the second statement really intensifies the first in that there's also a time to mourn and dance. There will be times when loved ones are lost. There will be times when tragedies occur and those tragedies will bring about weeping and mourning. But there will also be times when there's laughing and on. Prayerfully, more than one occasion, there'll be times where you can dance with joy. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Some theologians have taken this to be a euphemism for, for sex, sexual intercourse. But uh, I'm going to err with this other interpretation. But I'm just, I just pour that out there because maybe you've heard it two different ways. But... Um, during times of war, we know that rocks were thrown on the ground so that the fields weren't uh, able to cultivate. For example, um, uh, how many of you guys have ever been to Israel? Is anyone in here? A couple? I've never been there, and I, I can't wait to, to go there one day. But um, uh, people that have gone there, and they've talked to me, they said, Chris, I notice that in, in, in Israel there's so many rocks in the ground. <laughs> does, anyone, does anyone make that observation? And uh, people uh, often I comment on the multitude of rocks. And in 2 Kings 3... 19 and 25 were told that the Israelites were instructed to do this, ruin every good piece of land with, rocks. yeah, rock, stones, right? And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered, Second Kings 3, 19 and 25. But during times of peace, these rocks had to be removed, common sense, right, so that, that, so that the field could be, um, so they grow crops. So perhaps we can add that during times of war and peace also means times to embrace, and times to refrain from embracing. Verse 6, time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. There will be times to seek. And here this uh, passage is talking about the acquiring of possessions, and it's opposite. Sometimes we find things and sometimes we lose things. We can all think of times when our search efforts were rewarded, right? How many of you guys have ever had that cool time where like you're, you're really just wanting a cup of coffee, and you're just wanting t- to take some cash with you, right? And you're like, man, I can't. You know, you're trying to like muster all the change. And I only say this because I've done this, right, multiple times. So it's like, man, I need two twenty-five for an americano, and you just happen to like open your, your couch, uh, you know, take remove one of the, the cushions, and you're like, woohoo! Like there's there's a the seventy-five cents I need, and you rejoice, and you're like, I'm gonna get my americano, right? There's times that we have those times where we're just like, th- there are times that we seek and we're rewarded, and there, are, of course, the other times that we lose and we have to strip away. In a biblical example, we you think of is when the, there's a ship in the eye of the storm, you're having to remove as much excess weight as you can, as in the case of, of Jonah. Verse 7, time to, t- time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. This line clearly refers to the ancient practices of expressing sorrow. When people mourn um, the death of a loved one in the Bible, of course, there was crime, but there was also something they did Externally. You remember what they did? They'd begin to tear their garments, right? And they would mourn. For example, when Reuben thought that his younger brother Joseph had been killed, what did he do? He tore his garments, the Bible says. As Jacob did when he heard that his favorite son Joseph was dead, he, of course, was crying, but he also tore his garment. But when the time of mourning was finished, you know what they would do? They would sew up their garment. They would mend their garments. So that's why he's saying there's a time to tear, And there's a time to sow. There's a time to heal there as well. This line is paired with the line. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. People in this culture express the sorrow for losing a loved one by keeping silence. I think often you and I feel like we always have to say something when sometimes it's like, let's just be quiet. The friends of Job, whether you feel that, you know, I know they gave him a lot of bad advice, but it says here in Job 2.13, sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. Why? For they saw that his suffering was very great. When the time of mourning was completed, it was again a time to speak. But a time to keep silence need not be restricted to a time of sorrow, right? How many of you have ever regretted something you've said? You're like, man, I just wish, like, you know, if I literally had, like, a lasso, I could take those words and take them back. Absolutely. Absolutely. There have been many times in my life where I said, I just, I just should have been quiet. Probably refers to the very important wisdom theme of knowing like, when to speak as well as knowing when not to, of course. Verse 8, a time to love, <clears throat> a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. This is the last part of the poem. And again, as you've been seeing in this poem, there's all this parallelism, right? And it's here where love links up with peace and hate links up with war. The teacher, he's contrasting war and peace. This could possibly be the summarizing of some of the previous statements. Do you see some of them? Like an uprooting versus a planting, a seeking versus a losing, a tearing down versus a building up, a slaying instead of a healing, ripping, sowing, hating, loving. And this poem sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, where he writes, a generation comes or goes, and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rests. rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. So the teacher was talking about rep- repeated cycles in nature here in this section of Ecclesiastes. Now we, we're talking about the times set here in our life on earth. So the teacher now summarizes. So he goes over this masterful, awesome poem, and he summarizes with a rhetorical question. What is it? Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? You know what the answer is? It's rhetorical, but what's the answer? Someone say it. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Did you notice that in the poem... One item cancels the other. Birth, death, slay, heal. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Nothing left. A time to plant flowers and a time to pluck them up. Nothing left. Nothing gained. A time to build up and a time to tear down. Nothing much has changed. There's nothing to be gained from our toil. So up to this point, if, we, if the Bible just ended there, Like you you guys would just leave very discouraged. (laughs) You know, it's like, man, like all have like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the end. That'd be pretty sad, right? Like we would, yeah, we would we would not be a happy people. Uh, Up to this point the teacher has said nothing about the how and the why of our times. He's just saying, dude, this is our times. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. But he's merely illustrated that there's a time for everything and that these times cancel out each other. Which leads us to ask the question, okay, I can understand that. But my next question to you, writer of Ecclesiastes, is who set the times and why? Look at verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This business that our teacher is referring to is the, busyness, is the business of trying to understand what God brings to pass, which is undoubtedly a hopeless task. So as, I, as, you, it, it, as we've been going through this, this, the teaching of election, right, <clears throat> um, some of you are, are completely fine with it, some of you are completely against it, some of you are just like, oh, I don't know, I'm, just, I'm more confused than I was before. And what I'm praying that we would get, as we're going to break this down more, is that this is the business of God. These, this, is, this falls into the realm of the business of God, trying to figure God out. And, and the is going to clearly show us, but we can't. So before we go on, what I want to encourage you with, everyone here, wherever you stand on this issue, okay, is that if, especially if you're in that, that place of tension, it's okay. It is okay, and it's actually good for you. Going on. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. The writer's telling us it's God. It is God who sovereignly sets all the times. Everything that we just read about in that poem, guess who has set those times? God. God also set the time when Jesus would be born. Do you believe that? The New Testament, New Testament calls this the fullness of time. In Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5, Paul writes, "But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. God appointed, he set that time." Jesus was very much aware of the time set by God. He began his ministry preaching, "The time is fulfilled." And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time has come. It's appointed. <coughs> Jesus also knew that God had set a time for his death. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew twenty-six eighteen, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The time, appointed time, is coming near. We know that Jesus died, and at the point in time, Mark 8.31 tells us that he rose from the dead. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he met with his disciples, and they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you remember what Jesus said to them? It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. God has sovereignly set the times. So this is, where I see, this is where I see in the scriptures that makes it okay for you and I to not know certain things. Does that make sense? Because the disciples were also confused, all right? They were with Jesus for three years. They saw the miracles. They saw everything. They heard his teaching. But yet they're still asking him questions. They're like, is this the time, Jesus, that you're going to restore? And he's like, hey, 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 hey. It's not for you to know now. All right? It's not for, you know, the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. So I guess first off, can we all be a little relieved that it's okay that there is a mysterious element to the things of God? If that's good, say amen. Okay? That means that you can take the burden off yourself. But, all right, but don't think I'm, I'm saying you don't need to do theology. Every one of us in this room is a theologian because theology is simply the study of God. And if you've ever asked a question... Is there a God? What's the purpose of my life? You know what you're doing? What are you doing? Theology. You're doing theology. So don't ever think, you know, that, um, that we're not to pursue God with all of our mind. That was the biggest mistake I made early in my Christian faith because my Christian faith was so much based on experience and not like objective truth. And God's like, love me with all of yourself, Chris, with your heart, soul, and mind. But then there are things, too, that are just a mystery. And it's okay for all of us to be in that place of tension, to not know, to be like the disciples. But aren't you thankful that after that, even though he tells the disciples, it's not for you guys to know, because there are only things that the Father knows, and it's his authority. But he tells them, what does he tell them in Acts 1? He's like, stay, wait for the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Isn't that isn't that awesome that even though there are things that are unknown, the Father makes it clear through Jesus what the disciples need to do. Look, like, don't worry about the other things. Go and make disciples, okay? Because my Holy Spirit's going to allow you to do so. So so often though, you and I will get um, <clears throat> we get stuck in places of tension, and it almost like paralyzes us. <clears throat> and God has been clear on what we're to do. Verse 11, the second half of verse 11, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So again, Jesus told his disciples, it's not for you to know, and the same for us, because we cannot know what God has done from, from the beginning to the end. We do not know what God has done in the distant past, nor what he will do in the far off future. But the interesting thing is, even in that tension, God has put eternity into our hearts, And it's this sense of the of the past and the future. For example, you look at animals, right? Animals only live in the present. Humans, we're a little different. We can study the past and we can contemplate the future. God has given us this kind of self consciousness that enables us to really transcend the present and reflect on the on the past and future. Has anyone ever thought about the past and future? Yeah? Okay. Good. You're human. Welcome to the club. But again, we're limited because even though we have this ability, we have eternity in our hearts to comprehend things, it's, it's limited. Why? Again, because we're not the God that appointed all the times. One theologian describes it like this. He says, we are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in, right? So we're like just, we're touching this beautiful masterpiece of a, of a tapestry and we're like, you know, just touching it with our fingers, and we're like, oh, this is pretty awesome. This feels good. It's comfortable. It's cozy. And he says, we see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. So the difference between us and God is he he reveals himself, and we're able to, to feel around and make some observations but we're a lot different than because when he steps back, he sees the whole grand thing, understands its purpose. He's the maker. He understands every piece of material he used and what it's for. And since you and I can't fully understand the meaning of God's times, what are we to do? Verse 12 tells us, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So this advice really echoes what he said earlier in Ecclesiastes 2.24. He says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So he's telling us this, that since humans can't understand the times God set, let alone control them, it's best to concentrate on the present. Enjoy God's gift of food, drink, and toil. You're going to have to do some theological study there because I know Christians are everywhere on drink, okay? But we're not going to go there today. But the point is, enjoy the moments here and now in the present that God has given you. You can't understand and fathom all these times that have been set, but you can't understand the here and now that God has called you to be present in the here and now and to enjoy the gifts that God has given you and to be faithful to what the Lord has called you. You know, we're not here, and we're not to create heaven on earth. Nor are we to have the mentality that, you know what? I'll enjoy things when I get to heaven. We're to enjoy what God has given us in the here and now. But there's a little more that he tells us in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people, what? Fear before him here's the answer as to why God has set the times. Because the teacher says, whatever God does endures forever, right? If God is sovereign and he does something, it's going to happen and it endures forever. The sovereign God has set the times and the times that he set are permanent and unchangeable. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. What God has done is what is done. Nothing can be added to the past. The future cannot be changed. God has done it. And no man, no nation, no entity can change it. Amen? So the question is, why? Why have you done it that way, God? Why have you set all the times the way they are? Why did you do that? And he tells us, so that people fear before him. So in other words... God's sovereignty, the fact that he's in control all of, of all things, is what should spur worship in your heart. And for so, for so many people, this teaching of sovereignty really repelled them away from God. And I'm praying that you would see the sovereign king desires for us to fear him. And this word fear is another way of saying reverence. Just joyful worship and acknowledgement. God is wanting to show his sovereignty so that, in other words, people worship him. But the problem with you and I is we give, we give glory. All of us worship and all of us give glory to things, right? Because the Hebrew word, one of the meanings for glory is, is weight, right? So when you, when you look in the Bible and you see people that saw the glory of God, there was always a weightiness, right? right? Everyone was like, whoa, man. Like, you couldn't just like, you know, see God and encounter God and be like, eh, no big deal. When people saw the glory of God, it's like, man, they trembled, right? But the funny thing is, you and I can give glory to so many different things. We can give that weight. And so often, you and I aren't giving the sovereign God the weight he deserves. And what happens is, for example, um, I've shared with you before that my struggles, one of the struggles in my past has been people-pleasing. And at the root of that really is not believing that God is great. Because what happens is when I live to please people, or I'm so concerned of what peop- other people think, people become big, God becomes small. If we were to put them on a scale, people would, boom, they would just outweigh God. And I mean, in, th- in that case, I'm giving glory to people, not to him. God has shown us his sovereignty so that we would properly glorify him and that we would give him the weight in our life that he deserves. And this brings us to that truth. You know, I'm preaching the four Gs to myself every day. And one of the things I've been focusing on, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. And then I added just a little bit to that this week. I was just thinking about that, and I said, God is great, so I don't need to be in control. I just need to stand in awe of who he is and what he's done, that he sent his son. And when we get a proper view of God, it gives us a proper view of our lives. Right? Think about that, right? Everyone, okay? All of you who raise your hand, all right? With all your heart, believe that God is sovereign, right? And you believe that he's in control. But how many times in your life has there been a functional display where like at the, at the behavior level, you contradicted what you believed? And it's so interesting that God's sovereignty, you know what it does for us? It makes us aware of a couple things. It makes us aware that you and I are helpless. It makes us aware that you and I really have virtually no control of any of our life. We become aware that we cannot control the times, and it's God's times that make us aware of our total dependence on God because we don't even know the time. And it's this awareness of our helplessness and dependence, It it really then allows us to stand in awe before God. That's another translation, that, so that we would stand in awe of him, that we would be like just blown away. And one of the best uh, definitions, you know, I've read on sanctification is when the, when the gap between the head and the heart close, right? That what I believe here, you know, what I believe becomes a reality in my, in, in my life. And there's three things in reality that we can really repent from, Right? The first one, uh, first example of repentance would be you can repent from the unknown, right? How many of us have ever been in a sermon and something has just been revealed that we didn't know before and we're like, whoa, I never thought about it that way. I didn't know that was wrong. And like, Lord, you know, I'm going to turn from that and turn to you. Anyone? Right, okay. And then the second one is rebellion, right? I confess many times in my life there have been things that I I know this is wrong, God, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? Does does anyone ever do that? And we've got to repent, right? But the third thing I think we left, leave out is unbelief. We need to also repent from unbelief. Unbelief is also sin. You know, and Jesus you know, the Beatitudes in, in, in Matthew 6 when he talks about worrying and not being anxious, it's not saying, it doesn't say in the scriptures that worrying is sin, but it's implying that worrying and being anxious is sin because you're wrestling with unbelief. You're not believing that God is going to provide. That's why he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. It's a matter of unbelief. And I share that with you because if in your life you're seeing a divide, all right, it's not meant that you would, that the Holy Spirit doesn't re- reveal that you have a divide in your life and say, ha ha, you suck. No, no, no. He's not saying that. I really believe that if, if the Holy Spirit showed us all the gaps in our life, we would die. I think I would, you know, because I would just be so overwhelmed, like, oh, my goodness, I know I had so many gaps, Lord, ripping apart. But the Holy Spirit does is he reveals to us the gaps because he's gracious, because he's a loving father, and a loving father disciplines his children. And the Father through the Holy Spirit reveals this gap, and he's saying, this is what we're going to deal with. Chris, we're going to deal with your, 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 your need for being busy all the time. What are you not really believing about me, Chris? And in my life, I'm like, wow, when I do that, God, I really, I really believe that I have more control of the situation. And what happens is I give glory to myself, and I become bigger, and God becomes small. And that's ludicrous, isn't it? Do you remember in Exodus 19, when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai? And it says, it says lightning was roaring, and thunder was so loud. And I mean, it was... Just, It was just like, just crazy and cosmic, right? And you know what it said about the Israelites? They all trembled because why? They saw the glory of God. But in my case, it was that same thing. I I was taking that God, and I was making him very small. And it's the battle of unbelief. I wasn't really believing He's sovereign and great. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit doesn't do that because remember Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is disciplining us. And he's trying to get to the root of my heart saying, Chris, what is at the core of, of your unbelief? And it's like, God, by the way I'm living, I'm not really believing you're sovereign. And that questions everything else of your character. So, Lord, I come before you and I, I repent of my unbelief. I don't, I don't, I don't want to feel this need that I have to control this, Lord. And d- isn't that good? Because God is not asking us so often to, like, just do things. I'm not, I'm not ever saying that the scriptures don't ever tell you to do things. They do. But they always flow out of who God is and what he's done for you. So for me, in that case, the, the answer wasn't, Chris, just stop doing things. Or, Chris, just read the Bible more. Or, Chris, just pray more. Or, Chris, just go talk to a pastor or talk to your brother. God was saying, no, acknowledge me for who I am. Place your belief Properly, you know, like flow it properly to who I am and what I've done for you. And what's so interesting to me is that the, this is the mystery, right? You and I, we're always praying and we're seeking for answers, right, to things. And so often in my own personal life, and I pray that this would relate to some of you, that we're seeking an answer to something like, God, should I do this? Should I do that? And God is, God is in heaven and he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't worry about what you need to do. I just want to reveal more of my character to you. And God reveals more of his character as we're, like, agonizing in prayer and, you know, just going about living life. And he reveals more of who he is in whatever way he's revealed himself to you. And for some reason, that just makes sense of everything else. I don't know how it works. And I'm not saying that God doesn't ever answer our prayer and give us. I mean, he does give us specific things. But I have found often in my life, God is always just revealing more of his character to me. He's showing me that, Chris, there's a lot of divides in your life in which you're not really believing that I'm the source of all goodness and joy. And that's why you look to other things. That's why you're, you know, that's why you're checking these other things. That's why maybe you're, you're on your phone sometimes it's because you're really not believing that I'm the source of goodness and you're looking to something else. What I'm praying that you would see is that it's really, it's really at that heart level unbelief for a lot of our things because I, I, I look at this room. And I know that there are many that just love the Lord, and it's not that you're in rebellion, like, no, Lord, I'm not going to do what you, you, know, what, what what you want to do, and that you have a heart that you really want to do the things, but then you're seeing a divide. And I would just encourage you, maybe, maybe it's unbelief, and maybe you just need to take that before the Lord, and that's where repentance needs to begin. In the final verse, he says, That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is just a final closing our teacher gives us. He says, he just repeats this teaching that God is in control. It's like by describing the present was already in the past and the future is already in the present. Remember how um, Yoda in in Star Wars? You know, like, time always moving, you know, like, you know, and just like if you want to bring it to like this space-time continuum. What what the writer is really saying is past, present, future, it's all bound together. God owns it all. God controls it all. Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, honestly, is that good or bad that, that God control. Like, can, can you picture yourself to be in that role? I'm thankful that you're not in that role. And I'm thankful I'm not in that role. Things would be a mess. Right? But it's God. And he's worthy to place your trust in. And I close with this story. A friend of mine, he... Uh, <laughs> Shared, uh, he shared with me this story. He's a dear friend of mine. And he's very, very, um, very, very, super, super conservative in his theology, okay? And um, so, like, when I talk about dreams and visions, like, this is, this is not where he flows, right? But um, he was really wrestling with an issue in his life where um, he, he, had, he had narrowed it down. He's saying, like, I believe you're sovereign, but the way I'm living my life is I'm feeling like I always have to be in control. And he was just really wrestling with that. And um, he said... Uh, He he had this dream. And I was like, whoa, you had a dream? Let me hear about this dream. And he says, all right, this is going to sound really cliche, but I was walking around in this room, and it was all white, and I was looking around. And as I'm walking, I stop because all of a sudden, something ginormous just lands right in front of me. What is it? It was a big toe. okay, tell me about this big toe. He goes, I can tell you what I did when I saw that big toe. I didn't look up. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't say anything. I just fell to my knees. And with as big as I could extend my arms, I just wrapped it around this big toe, and I started to kiss it, and I was weeping, and I was just crying. And he said the confirmation that was given to him right here was that he just immediately saw that he experiences the immenseness of God, the vastness of God. And it's, it's really the voice that had said to him, I love you. I'm this big, I'm this ginormous, I'm this awesome, but I love you. And I choose to love you. So I'm taking these things, we're talking and you know, dreams and visions, I think everything needs to be interpreted by the Bible. First John tells us to test the spirits, the Bereans and Acts. They had, they had one of the greatest expositors, Paul, preaching. And what does it say? They were like examining day and night to make sure that, you know, what Paul was saying was true. So it's like, okay, God is big. Is that scriptural? What do you guys think? Okay, God spoke things in existence, right? It's like, let there be light. Kapow, it's there, right? That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Revelation says that, you know, when John saw him, like, John saw the angel of the Lord, it was ginormous, right? Great. Is God great? Is that biblical? Is God sovereign? Is that biblical? How about God loving us and being a father to us? Is that biblical? Amen. God was speaking to my friend eternal truth through that dream. And that's how good God is. I just want to challenge you today. Do you believe In your heart, God is sovereign. And that everything that you've been through in your life, what you're going through today, what's what's in store for you in the future, that God has appointed and set that time. And that he's good. And that Romans 8, as Brad has been preaching, all that is happening to conform you into the image of his son. And that's good news, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so great. I think one of the things that always amazes me is that even though you're so great, even though you're of royalty, even though you don't need to give me the time of day, you don't need to give any of us the time of day, you, you would be completely right if you did not. That in all your greatness and splendor, and sovereignty, you choose to relentlessly pursue your people. And God, I I honestly struggle with that at times because of my own inadequacy. Father, I see how impatient I can be with my own kids as they sometimes frustrate the heck out of me. And yet, how often must I frustrate you and how often I must, you know, like rebel against you and how often I must just walk in cluelessness of the ways of God and how often I walk in unbelief but yet you keep proud of me through your Holy Spirit and you keep saying return and I know that you're doing that here with with all your people God and I'm praying that they would see that the sovereign God who is awesome and glorious is so patient and gracious with us And I want to pray a prayer of encouragement upon my brothers and sisters here, Lord, and just everybody in this room. Pray that they would know everything they've been through, everything they're going through, and everything that they're going through. They don't worship a God that is disconnected and distant. They worship a God who has appointed the times and has revealed himself when the fullness of time has come through his son, Jesus. And we look at Jesus and we see that he's God in the flesh. That God, you, you from your cosmic throne and whatever was going on in time, in space, in whatever, entered into our, into, our, into, our, into our feeble world here to live among us and to die for us so that you could redeem a people for yourself. Man, that is good news. And it's news I need every day, Jesus. It's news, it's news that every person in this seat needs every day. Because, Lord, all of us here, we battle with unbelief, Lord. And I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would reveal that. And not so that there would just be guilt and condemnation. No, that, that so that there would be repentance. So that there would be a recalibrating of our lives to the things of you. So, God, I just ask that you would reveal more of your character to us, God. Show us your greatness. Show us your, your glory. Show us your graciousness. Show us your goodness. Because God, I am a firm believer the more we see those clearly, the more we'll appreciate what you've done. And then finally we'll understand who we are and how we're to live. Thank you, God. You are amazing. And thank you that you long to be called Father. Father. Man, that's good. Thank you that we have the greatest daddy anyone could ever ask for in heaven. Because our daddy is sovereign. He's appointed all times. Nothing ever surprises him. And he loves us with an everlasting love. And that, my friends, is good news. It's in your son's wonderful name we pray. Amen.